The New Testament reading is taken from Matthew 5, 13 to 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be made saltiness again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teachers, teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. And if, if this is your first time here, we're uh, grateful for that. And we do hope we get a chance to connect with you before you, before you leave. And right now, we're, we're going through the book of, of Matthew, and, and one thing that we've looked at a lot in the book of Matthew is this notion of Christ fulfilling the Old Testament, and in particular, this passage brings this notion to a head as we see how Christ fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the law and the prophets. And this is the second sermon on the Sermon on, on the Mount. And like the other one, this is going to hit on some key issues that are going to be traced throughout the rest of the sermon as well. But in confidence that God has given us this word, that he might present Christ to us as Christ is freely offered to us in the gospel, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for Christ we thank you for who he is and what he tells us, Father. We thank you for his message, Lord, but we know that he is not just the messenger, but the message itself. He himself is the very fulfillment of the law. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to better understand what that means. Bless these words. May they be true to your intentions for this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this text, we see many things, and, and next week we're going to look at the significance of, of the mountain, and, and next week we're going to look at the salt and light imagery. But this week in particular, we are going to look at how Christ fulfills the law, because this is a very big, a very important topic. And before we do that, let's retrace some steps from, from last week. Again, this is our second sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, and in last week we looked at how the Sermon on the Mount, it operates against two corresponding and two complementary ethical traditions. We have the tradition of the Old Testament, but we also have the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. 
And both of these see the ethical life as the good life. It's the life of flourishing and the life of happiness. And if you remember, we, we borrowed a framework from philosopher Alistair McIntyre from his book, After Virtue. And he says that any ethic, an ethical structure has four parts. It has a particular notion of flourishing, of, of the good life, of happiness. It has virtues. It has practices, and it has a moral tradition that all of these operate within. Last week, we, we looked at the Beatitudes as, as virtues. We have the nine virtues of the Beatitudes that direct us to human happiness and, and flourishing. And these virtues, these Beatitudes, they're matured, they're strengthened, they're development, developed through practices, practices that we'll begin looking at next week. And in particular, last week, we talked about the image of the professional taste testers. Through the practice of many years of carefully tasting fine food, taste testers have learned to discern, to identify, to appreciate fine cuisine more than any untrained palate. A professional taste tester could enjoy a good meal much more than someone like me would be able to do. And to be sure, Jesus uses this very imagery as one of the Beatitudes tells us, flourishing, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteous, righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what is the virtue, the quality, the ability here? Well, it's to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, to desire righteousness and to appreciate and savor its taste when it's set before us. To rehearse an earlier quote that we used last week from C.S. Lewis, God gives us what he has, not what he has not. He gives us the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe ever can grow, then we must starve eternally. And righteousness is one way that Christ describes the content, the shape of human happiness and flourishing. Righteousness is what we must hunger and thirst for. We have to learn to savor its taste. And if we don't have an appetite for it and we simply push it away, then our only alternative is to starve forever. And again, next week, we'll begin looking at the practices that Christ commends for growing our taste for righteousness, the practices that will grow those nine virtues that we see in the Beatitudes. But today, we're going to look closer at two other components that McIntyre gives us. It's the actual content of human happiness and flourishing, and it's that moral tradition that this operates within. And so then why focus on righteousness as the content of human flourishing and righteousness? As Christ tells us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And why focus on the moral tradition of this flourishing? Well, as Christ tells us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all 
is accomplished. The moral tradition in which Christ is operating is the tradition of the law and the prophets. He's not coming to abolish or destroy or terminate that tradition. He's coming to fulfill it, to bring it to its consummation. The moral tradition of the law and prophets, it directs us to happiness and flourishing. And again, one way to describe this flourishing is righteousness. And so precious of food is righteousness that we are meant to feast on portions of it that far outweigh the measly crumbs of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so what exactly is righteousness, right? That's, that's the big question. Well, Christ makes an important connection here. He tells us again, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Christ is telling us at least three very important things here. As long as creation exists in its present form, the law will exist in its present form. And the law in its present form, therefore, is bound to creation in its present form. Somehow they're intimately connected, and both the creation, as we now know it, and the law in their present form, they will pass away, but not until all is accomplished. Christ connects the persisting, the lasting of the law with heaven and earth right? Heaven and earth is all of creation. Somehow, all of heaven and earth, all of creation is intimately connected with the law. And this should not surprise us because remember from last week, the key biblical image for the one who delights, who longs for, who desires, who loves the law is the image of Psalm 1. It's the image of the flourishing tree, Again, in the Beatitudes, Christ makes nine explicit connections to Psalm 1. The same Greek word that begins the Greek translation of Psalm 1 begins each of the nine Beatitudes. As Psalm 1 tells us, makarios, flourishing, happy is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, On his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Who is the one who flourishes? Well, it's the one who loves and longs for and delights in the law of the Lord. What is this one like? Well, this one is like a tree with deep roots who drinks water in full, whose leaves and fruit have come to full fruition. This one is like the tree that is becoming what God intends the tree to be. This one is fulfilling God's intentions for creation. Again, Christ does not come to abolish the law. His ninefold allusions to the, to the law, to Psalm 1, his nine uses of makarios and the Beatitudes, they make it clear that this is the moral tradition that of the law and prophets that Christ is operating within. And there's a lot here, so let's take stock before we move forward. Jesus assumes the moral tradition of the law, right? We see that. 
And we see that the goal of this tradition is, is flourishing, happiness, the good life, makarios. It's moving from the acorn to the oak tree. This is what ethics is for. Again, ethics is about happiness. Jesus describes this flourishing, this happiness as righteousness. In the moral tradition of the Bible, which aims at this happiness and flourishing that is righteousness, this tradition assumes an intimate connection between heaven and earth, that is, all of creation, and the law, as both exist in their present form. And there's a lot here, but as we'll see, these things hold together very tightly. They work to form a tightly bound, a tightly integrated ethical whole. And so let's start with that connection that Christ makes between creation and the law. And perhaps the key passage for tracing out this connection is Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul presents righteousness just as Jesus does. He does so in terms of creation. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the created order shows us that there is a God that we are meant to gratefully honor and thank and worship and love. But Paul tells us that we've chosen the good things of creation, that we've loved them more than God. And this is the basic logic of sin, loving some good thing, something in creation more than the very greatest good, God himself. And deep down, Paul tells us that we know that we have not loved God as we should. And so, since we haven't loved God rightly, we also fail to love our neighbor rightly. As Paul tells us in Romans, these disordered loves, they play out in the following ways in our lives. We fall victim to what Paul says is envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And we become, as Paul tells us, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is quite the list of vices. And Paul tells us that we all know better, that when we look around, we see this. We look at creation and we look in our own hearts, and this is the basic intuition we find within ourselves. This is the basic setting of our consciences. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And so Paul is telling us that all of us, whether we've been schooled in the law of God as it is revealed in Scripture, or whether we have seen the law as it's revealed in creation, we all know that we are called to love God and neighbor. Paul tells us that we know this by virtue of our nature, by being human in the world that God has put us in. By the order of nature, we see what makes an acorn flourish, what makes an acorn become an oak tree. And so, too, Paul tells us, do we know what makes humans flourish? For instance, examining the natural order without any access to Scripture whatsoever, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, in his Nicomachean Ethics, he identifies the following vices, vices that destroy human happiness and human flourishing, 
And notice here the striking resemblance that this list bears to what we just heard from Paul, but also to many of the prohibitions in the Ten Commandments. Aristotle warns against the vices of spite, shamefulness, envy, adultery, theft, murder. As readers of Scripture, all of these should sound very, very familiar. And such things, they make us shriveled acorns, not majestic oaks. And so when you look at this, I want you to take note of two things. The first is when you hear this, don't think that I'm saying primarily that these things are wrong and other things are right. I am saying that, but that's not the most basic, the most foundational thing I'm saying. Being wrong and right is not simply a rule code that's disconnected from creation. Something is wrong because it hinders, it prohibits, it stops, it frustrates our flourishing and our happiness. It keeps us from becoming what God intended us to be. And something is right because it fosters, it cultivates, it grows our flourishing. These things are built into creation itself. The lack of sunlight is wrong for a tree because it kills the tree. Envy and adultery are wrong for the human because they kill the human. These things are death. And secondly, note that both Paul and Aristotle, they identify vices that are primarily relational. They speak to how people relate to other people. From observing the created order, both realize that flourishing or happiness is poisoned and it's killed by things like envy, murder, deceit, maliciousness. And this actually agrees with modern examinations into the created order. For instance, an 80-year-long study from Harvard University that looked at what makes for a happy in a healthful life, it recently reported its findings. And they found, for instance, close relationships more than money or fame are what keep people happy throughout their lives, the study revealed. Those ties protect people from life's discontents, help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. What the study tells us is that relationships are more important for our flourishing, for instance, than professional success. And if ethics is ultimately about happiness, this means that pursuing your career at the expense of close relationships, it's not wrong because of some abstract rule code. It's wrong because it kills and poisons your flourishing, your happiness, the life that God intends for his creatures, for the humans he created. It's wrong because it cuts against the created order. Whether or not these researchers realize this, what they are doing and investigating happiness is actually investigating ethics. However, for unethical actions, they will isolate you from others. And this isolation will kill you. As one of the Harvard researchers explained, loneliness kills. It's as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. 
And we read this quote last week as theologian Sinclair Ferguson tells us about righteousness as it's presented in the Beatitudes. It involves right relationships. Relationships between ourselves and God, between ourselves and others, and ourselves and the world at large. Righteousness is relational. And the church should fight against loneliness. We must work hard as a congregation to deepen our relationships with one another, even and especially when things get uncomfortable. But we must also work hard to welcome others into this congregation. And if I can get a little specific here, one, one thing that we could think about is when the service starts, there's actually very few people here. And if people come to One Ancient Hope for the first time, there's often very few people to welcome them, to let them know that we are glad and grateful for their presence here. And that can be unfortunate because this church is such a warm and welcoming church. This church is a church that excels at hospitality. And for that reason, I, I might encourage you to make a commitment to try to get here 10 minutes early so that we can practice that gift of welcoming and hospitality that Christ has blessed this congregation with. Again, righteousness is about living rightly before God with our neighbor in the world. It's just about being properly human in the created order. And interestingly, even the very Greek word that Scripture uses to describe righteousness Dikaios, the very word that comes from the mouth of Christ in the pen of Paul, well, it appears in the ancient Greek ethical tradition. Without referencing the New Testament, philosopher Alistair MacIntyre points out that in the world and the writing of the Greek poet Homer, uh, the author, or at least the persona identified as the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and his writing Dikaios appears as a distinctly ethical term. However, McIntyre warns us that we often fail to grasp the full meaning of this term. He says, the difficulty in translating dikaios by just is clear. For someone in our own culture may use the word just without any reference to or belief in a moral order of the universe. To be dikaios in Homer is not to transgress that order. This shouldn't surprise us if we're taking Paul's argument in Romans 1 and 2 to heart. This is the same notion that we find in both Christ and Paul that righteousness just is proper participation in the created order. This is an ethics that sees the moral pattern for flourishing woven into creation. This is an ethics of being at home in the world. C.S. Lewis puts this perfectly. He says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. And this point is also very important for our life together in the world. Humanity generally, and not just Christians specifically, have long looked at the world and seen an order to human life. 
It's long been assumed that is what is true for the acorn, becoming the oak, is also true for humanity. And because of this, the church has long believed that deep community is possible between all people, and that includes people inside and outside the church. If we can look at creation and find an ethical order, then all people can share some basic agreements about living our life together and making it both possible and purposeful. Jake Medor, in his, his new book, What Are Christians For?, he makes this point well, and this quote's a, a little long, but it's, it's worthwhile. He says the following about this dynamic. If we do not share any common facts or common reality with our neighbors, if we are all inextricably locked up in our prejudices and follies and can only arrive at truth through the word of God, then there's actually no basis for life together among those who do not confess the Christian faith. The possibility of persuasion in a healthy pluralism is intrinsically dependent on the idea that two neighbors can access the same reality together. If there's no shared reality, there's no basis for shared reasoning. This, then, is why we need a firm commitment to the idea that there is such a thing as a natural order that can be observed and understood. Apart from it, we will be condemned to the very thing we are now experiencing in the Western world, cloistered-off communities unable to talk with one another or even to understand one another for they have nothing in common about which to talk. Midor is saying that without the natural order that we can observe, that we can all observe and follow to some degree or another, without that there's no real basis for shared life together, for shared goods, for shared projects, for shared goals, for shared ethics, for shared relationships, for any sharing at all. If we don't have that, then all that we'll find is a competition of wills, a competition of different preferences. If there's no order out there, then the only order that we can find is within each of us, and we impose that order upon the world. And if each person finds their own order within themselves, within our own wills and desires and preferences, then all we have are countless personal individual orders. And this as we see in our modern moment, can only lead to conflict, to my will against yours, or as Medor tells us, to cloistered-off communities unable to talk with one another or even to understand one another. If there's nothing outside of us that we can appeal to, to evaluate, to guide, to arbitrate our ethical discussions, then all that we can do is yell more loudly. And this is exactly what we see in the American media, regardless of the position that's being advocated. If the only thing that makes something wrong or right is our own individual will, our own preferences, our consent or lack of consent, then we have no basis for being bound together as a society. For instance, if, if two consenting wills between two adults makes adultery an ethical act, regardless of the damage that it might cause, that it will cause to family and friendships, then we have no way to come together as a society. All we have is the wills of two adulterous spouses against the wills of the rest of their families. 
An ethics of mere consent cannot hold human relationships together. Why favor one set of wills over against another? Even more, in this kind of framework, there's ultimately nothing more that we can say than, I feel you should not do this. Perhaps you tell me that I should make sure that those who work for me earn a living wage. But really, all you're telling me is that feel I should do this. But since there's no order out there, the only order for me must be the order that I feel is right. And perhaps my personal order, well, it's different than your personal order. In fact, if the only reason that we're here is because our ancestors got the best of other ancient creatures, then really the only rule that we could ever find out there is that of the strong devouring the weak. And I might argue that my treatment of the poor and marginalized is actually much more in line with what got us here in the first place. You tell me that I'm free to make up my own meaning for my life, and now that you're angry, now you're angry that I've gone and done just that. Am I allowed to make up my own meaning or aren't I? Please, make up your mind. Either there's an actual ethical order in the world that stands above all of us, or there isn't. It's got to be one or the other. Either we can reason together because there is some standard that we all know that calls us to account, or there isn't. And our only option is to get angrier and shout louder. The point is that we all know and feel that there should be justice, that there should be righteousness. In fact, we daily apply this conviction to others. Think about all of the complaints about other people that you made in your head last week. Perhaps you were cut off in traffic. Perhaps someone didn't return your phone call. Perhaps someone didn't say thank you when you thought they should. Perhaps they seemed to ignore or snub you, and you found yourself angry and affronted. Mentally, you held them in contempt for not doing what any good, decent person would do. But of course, all of us, we frequently do all of these things and more. And so the irony, it's not just that we don't measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. We don't even measure up to our own standard of righteousness that we freely hoist onto other people. And this brings us to an important point. It's that creation in its present form, it can only get us so far. And let's turn again to, to Homer in the Iliad. That's his poem about the 10-year battle between the Greeks and the Trojans. Homer and Paul and Christ, there's a, same, there's a shared assumption about dikaios, about righteousness. It's an ethic of life to creation. And however, while all of them share some basic agreements about dikaios, this is the whole basis of Paul's argument in Romans 1 and 2. There's also some very important key differences. For instance, there's a scene near the end of the Iliad that breaks from the biblical notion of flourishing. In the story, Achilles' best friend Patroclus has been killed by the Trojan Hector. 
Achilles, however, has the greatest difficulty in accepting Patroclus' death. So great is his anger and his grieving at the death that Achilles lashes out in rage against the Trojans and eventually against Hector. And after killing Hector, he refuses to give Hector's body back for a proper burial, and he desecrates the body. And these actions, it angers many of the gods, and eventually in response, the god Apollo says the following, No doubt some mortal has suffered a dearer loss than this, a brother born in the same womb or even a son. He grieves, he weeps, but then his tears are through. The the fates have given mortals hearts that can endure. The dikaios, the righteousness urged by Apollo and by Homer is to mourn for a bit, but then get over the pain and death, pain and grief that death brings. We're all going to lose those close to us, be it a friend, a sibling, a parent, a child. Dying is just part of the human life, and we must either face it and get over it quickly, or we will be living against the grain of reality. We'll be working against dikaios, against righteousness. And as we see here, humans in the Iliad are referred to as mortals. And a more stringent translation of this Greek phrase would actually be the dead ones. The dead ones. But there's an irony here. We can all relate to Achilles. We too hate and grieve death. We see it as a great tragedy, a great enemy. Yes, we see it in the created order as it now exists, but we simply cannot come to fully accept it. In fact, Homer can write about this conflict because he knows this is a deep universal human tension. And so what could it mean to have a deep moral ethical intuition that cuts against the world as we now see it? Well, Paul answers this question in Romans because to speak of flourishing is to speak of something's full fruition, its full purpose, its telos. The telos of an acorn is an oak. And Paul directs us to the human telos in Romans 6. Speaking of sin, of our violation of righteousness that we find in the created order, Paul says, the telos of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its telos, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is telling us that there are two forms of telos. One telos is that of death. The other bears the full creational fruit of eternal life in Christ. One is the telos of righteousness, the other of unrighteousness. Paul tells us if we are not following this order of creation that calls us to love and honor and thank God and to love our neighbor as ourself, then the telos of that life is death. Again, things are wrong because they kill us. And not only have we not followed this law perfectly, we haven't even followed our own standards of righteousness. So think about telos as we close here. One theological dictionary describes it like this. Telos is the consummating conclusion of a dynamic process. And the consummated conclusion of a process of being an acorn, well, that's becoming an oak. 
and the cosmic conclusion of a process of living against the created order, well, the telos is death. Not flourishing, but floundering. We've all failed to live righteously, even by our own standards, and so we all die. As Homer tells us, we are the mortals. We are the dead ones. And this telos is also the fitting punishment of unrighteousness. And we wish it were different. We know that death is a tragedy, it's an enemy, it's an affront that we can never fully accept. And that's because we know that we're not meant for death. However, Paul tells us another consummating conclusion of the human life. The telos of the true human life is the life of righteousness. It's a life of properly being human in creation before God with our neighbor. The telos is eternal life. Even more, Paul tells us this is eternal life in Christ. And this takes us back to Christ's statement. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This law of righteousness, this natural law of creation, is what Christ has come to fulfill. In Christ, God becomes human and lives the perfect human life of righteousness. He lives the perfect life of creational conformity, and so he merits, he earns the telos of eternal life. But he does something even more. He gives us this telos. He gives this eternal life to us. And on the cross, he actually takes our telos, the telos of our life of unrighteousness. He takes death itself. As Christ tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we shall be given righteousness, the telos of Christ Jesus himself. Christ tells us, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we are truly meek and humble, then we shall inherit the earth, a restored creation free from death and corruption. The world in its present form will pass away and all of sin and its effects will be gone. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If God has made peace with us, then we will make peace with our neighbors. We will live righteously with the other. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we are truly righteous, we shall see God. We shall know and love and commune fully with God forever. But how much righteousness do we need? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So one last question. How do we hold that together? Well, it takes us back one more time to Romans, to another time when Paul speaks of telos, to our full fruitioning, to our full flourishing. In Romans 10.4, Paul says, Christ is the telos of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul here is speaking of the resurrected Christ. He's speaking of his risen life free from death. Yes, Christ takes our telos of death upon the cross, but then Christ is raised to full human happiness, full human flourishing, to makarios. Here is humanity as a fully grown and majestic and mighty oak tree. And this is the telos of the law. 
This is what happens when God's law of creational righteousness is followed with perfect love and conformity. The resurrected Christ is the telos, the culminating conclusion of the dynamic process of perfectly following God's good and gracious and beautiful law of righteousness. But remember how Paul puts this, Christ is the telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The resurrected Christ is the telos, the purpose, the flourishing, the happiness to everyone who believes. Yes, Christ fulfills the law and he does it for us. And if we believe in him, if we put our faith in him, he gives us this telos, this full flourishing of righteousness. He wins it for us. Christ's present is our future. And Christ also gives us a new heart, one that now, however imperfectly, is able to love God and neighbor. And soon, one day, our own righteousness will be complete when Christ returns in the resurrection when all is accomplished. The present form of corruption will pass away and a fully restored and perfected creation will take its place. And as Jesus tells us, the law too will take a new form. No longer will we need the written form of the law to know the full and perfect righteousness of the full human life before God as it's written down by jot and tittle, by iota and dot. Instead, it will be fully written and fully followed by every human heart. And as God promises through the prophet Jeremiah about the day of Christ's return, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. On that day, we will love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We will love our neighbor as ourselves, and we will receive full happiness and flourishing. We will love and steward all of creation. Rightly, all loneliness and isolation will be vanquished. And even now, this promise is being ushered through the life of the church as we seek to love others, as we have already been loved supremely in Christ by receiving his righteousness by faith. This is the end, the telos, the purpose, the flourishing, the happiness of the law fulfilled in Christ. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to fulfill the law on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that he has lived the life of perfect righteousness, that he has been the perfect human, and that he gives us his flourishing, his telos of eternal life, and that he takes our telos of death. And we thank you, Lord, that it is by faith, faith in his work, that we receive this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.